Life in a Small French Village, Episode 2, Dracula. Moving to Montigny meant leaving all my friends behind. I knew no one in the village, I had never lived in a French village, and I really didn't know how things worked. My husband went off to work every day, driving 60 kilometres to get there. But here I was, with no one to talk to, and with no telephone. Back in the 1970s, the French telephone system was disastrous. In Paris, even if you had a telephone, many calls never came through at all. And when you wanted to make a call, you were usually told the lines were saturated and to please try later. When later? The little game could go on for frustrating days. But there was another problem, too. In the cities, you were lucky if you rented an apartment that had a telephone. Otherwise, the waiting list to get one could be endless. Of course, as soon as the house in Montigny was bought, I applied for a phone but I was told I'd have to wait for a year or perhaps a year and a half. Since that was quite normal, I resigned myself to it, although it did present problems. In Paris, there were public telephones on street corners, and some of them even worked, although they stank like public urinals, and they often functioned as urinals as well. So usually people went to cafes to make calls, although in those places too the phones were downstairs in damp, stinking basements crammed in between the toilets and terrible tiny kitchens where sweating galley slaves toiled. In the village, however, things were very different. There were no public telephones in the three cafes, but there was a public phone box in the village centre. Unfortunately, it was often out of order. The only solution then was to go eight kilometres to the next village and use the phone in the post office. However, we only had one car and my husband took that to work. I was left with an old bicycle and I'm no sportswoman. And although the landscape looked ridiculously flat, it wasn't. But I only found that out on the day I pedalled and puffed the eight kilometres fighting the constant wind. I finally resigned myself to writing letters to friends in the city like everyone had done for long centuries. And I'd wait patiently for the day when things improved and I got a phone, in a year or so. One morning I heard someone knocking on the door. When I opened it, there was a very strange creature standing outside. She had long, straight black hair, a very long white face, strange staring eyes and two teeth long fangs. I later found out that it was because of these fangs she was locally called Dracula. And I was also to learn that everyone in the village, or at least on my rather long primitive street, had a nickname. Dracula introduced herself as Marie, said she lived a few doors down. She had a strange, primitive, aggressive shouting way of speaking, with a lot of eh, et toi, It wasn't easily comprehensible, for her words tumbled over one another and all the missing teeth did nothing for addiction. Okay, she did look slightly mad, but she seemed a rather benign, friendly soul at the same time. And then, quite abruptly, 
She said she wanted to come into the house, introduce herself correctly, and show me a list she'd prepared with the times and the days the different suppliers passed through the village. Of course, I had no idea what suppliers she was referring to, but she explained that these were the itinerant traders who came through each week, selling articles from their vans, things like vegetables, meat, fish, bread, and even clothing and household supplies. It just depended on who serviced your village. These merchants were an absolute necessity back then, for many, if not most, village women didn't know how to drive and certainly not those with a rural background. It was different for the middle-class women who had come to the village from elsewhere, though. In any case, in rural families, the car was a husband's property, and that was an unwritten law that few, if any, ever challenged. A wife might be allowed to clean the car, wash it, admire and stroke it, even ride as a passenger inside it, but that was as far as things were allowed to go. A car was a man's object of pride and joy, one watched over, guarded and protected with one's life if necessary, as a man several houses further down later told me. He kept his car in a garage across the road from his house, but it was a very narrow road, one car width wide, but he refused to sleep in an upstairs bedroom. The matrimonial bed was placed in a downstairs room just off the kitchen, a room perhaps originally intended as a living or dining room, just so he could be closer to his car in case anyone tried to steal it in the night. And not only that, he had covered the garage floor with cement, then had set a cast iron ring into the cement. To this ring, he attached a heavy iron chain that was then slung about some part under the car, an axle perhaps, so that thieves would never be able to move the vehicle out of the garage anyway. And as if those weren't precautions enough, he slept with a huge, sharp, steel World War I bayonet under his window with the full intention of goring each and every car thief silly enough to try any funny business with his pride and joy. Back to Dracula. Well, there I was with a very odd-looking woman who was demanding in that very aggressive way to be led to my house. I didn't really know what to do, but being naturally polite, I didn't have either the courage or the detachment to say no. And once we were standing in my kitchen, she pulled a rather doubtful-looking, much-crumpled piece of paper out of her pocket, pushed it under my nose. Here, look! At the top of the paper were letters designating the days of the week. Under were the names of merchants, what they sold, and the time they passed. The baker passed each morning but Monday, she explained, because everyone wanted fresh bread. But I wasn't to trust the butcher's wife. She passed on Wednesday, and she was more concerned with her various paramours. She didn't even like other women, and was known to have shortchanged them, although the butcher himself, well, he was a nice man, and his horse meat was excellent. I thanked her for the list and the information, but somehow I felt certain she wanted something from me, although I had no idea what it was. And just as she reached the door, she turned stared at me with her piercing black gaze. You have a telephone? Aha, I thought. So, she wants to make a free phone call. No, I said, I don't have a phone. I know, she said. And she snickered. I know you don't. Are you going to get one? Yes, of course, I'm on the waiting list. Ah, and what did the phone company tell you? That you have a phone in a year? 
Yes, that's what they said. Well, it won't be. It won't be a year. If they said a year, it would be at least a year and a half. Could even be two years. Well, I'll just wait and see, I said. I didn't know where this conversation was heading, and her expression had become decidedly sly. You want one faster than that? You want one next week? It didn't sound as though she were proposing something above board. No, thanks, I said. I'll just wait the year. Why wait a year or two when you can have one next week? I'll just wait. I've already put the order in. I didn't trust this woman one inch. I can arrange it for next week. I've got a friend. He puts in telephones. Private. That's very nice, but I'd rather it be legitimate. He is legitimate. He works for the phone company? No, it's private. No, then. No, thanks. Why? I'm trying to help you. I know people, the right people. I have influence. Come on, what kind of influence, I wondered. Let me help you, she said. Why be stupid when you can be smart? Look, how about next Thursday? You here Thursday? Well, I'm not really sure where. You be here Thursday. It was an order. I'll arrange the whole thing. It'll cost you 50 francs, that's all. I nodded like one of those silly toys in car back windows. I just wanted her to leave. I had no idea what she was trying to loop me into other than making my wallet 50 francs thinner. I knew that whatever it was, I didn't want it. But, self-assured in her gentle madness, she marched out of the house and disappeared down the road. Well, that's the end of that, I thought, with great relief. I was happy with the list she had left with me, or at least I was happy with the idea of it, because actually reading it was quite a mental challenge, rather like deciphering the instructions for a washing machine in some very strange language you have little access to, say, Canty or 13th century Estonian. To say the least, Dracula had been very creative in her spelling. Some was phonetic, some incomprehensible, and all was whimsical. I had never imagined those banal and simple words for different foodstuffs could take on quite so many imaginative variations. But once I had worked it all out, life was easier. The telephone booth in the village centre was repaired too. I really thought no more of Dracula and her proposal. I only hoped I wouldn't run into her. And then finally Thursday came around. I held my breath, but the morning passed calmly. And then it was noon, and then afternoon. Four o'clock came and went. I'd had nothing to fear. I was so relieved. But suddenly, at 4.30, there was an insistent hammering on the door. I went to answer it. A short, squat man with a toolbox was standing there. I'm here to install the phone. Behind him, smiling proudly, was Dracula. You see, I told you I'd arrange everything. I did let them in. The man drilled away, produced perfectly normal-looking telephone wires, hammered and punched, did what telephone installers do, went out to his van, returned with a perfectly normal telephone. He hooked it up, tested it. OK, you're all set up. Here's your number. I picked up the phone, dialed. It worked. It was a miracle. I handed over 50 francs. The short, squat man left with Dracula on his heels. But just as she reached the door, she turned. You see? What did I tell you? I've got influence. I know people. You need something? You just come to me. And with a look of great satisfaction, she marched down the road. 
How had she managed when I couldn't? This was a mystery that needed solving. But solving the mystery didn't take much time at all. Two days later, I was walking down the road when I heard someone call out, Hey! It was Dracula, waving to me from the little garden in front of a tiny house. You enjoying your phone? Yes, I said humbly, very much. Thank you. And she invited me in for a coffee, sat me down in her warm kitchen, and I asked her how she'd managed the whole thing. Oh, it's simple, she said. She'd originally lived in the north of France, in the Pas de Calais. The man who had installed the telephone was also from the Pas de Calais, and he was an old friend of hers. He'd actually been the father of five of her six children, although no one knew that, and all the children had been taken away by the social services anyway. Then she'd moved down here to come live with Roland, a builder, but the telephone man had also moved down here and had gotten a job with a private telephone installation company. He still was her friend, too, and whenever she needed favours, he was happy to help. Just don't tell Roland I'm still seeing him. He'd kill me if he knew. His rifle's always loaded, and he keeps it right beside the bed. I assured her I'd keep the secret. In any case, I had no idea who Roland was, and who knew when I might need a telephone repairman.